Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Let me start this evening by telling you a little story. That's right, it's story time with Uncle Jim. Uh, You know, I had the event back at the end of March. I really feel like I'm, for the most part, physically all recovered from it because I had a physical therapist who worked on my leg and I had an occupational therapist who worked on my arm and my hand and I continue to exercise them, and, and I feel like they're pretty fully recovered. But my speech therapist really concentrated on things like cognition and memory and sequence and those kind of thought process things, but she didn't work on the musculature of my mouth. And my mouth, I was in aphasia, and since I was in aphasia, I couldn't swallow and I had trouble speaking And I just had trouble with the musculature, not getting my mouth to do what I wanted it to do. And so uh, over the course of months, I've been saying tongue twisters and saying just out loud at home, just when no one's around, exercising my mouth with all sorts of peculiar and bizarre exercises that I've seen people who speak professionally who have come into my studio I've seen the exercises that they do, and so I've been doing those. This is going to tie into the message in a moment. We were in the car yesterday, my son and I, or perhaps the day before, and I had just seen a viral video. There was a viral video right now of Dick Van Dyke, who I I like. My dad wanted to be Dick Van Dyke. So we were raised on the Dick Van Dyke show. And Dick Van Dyke, sitting in a Denny's in the middle of the night with his singing group, And he sings Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And he sings it real up-tempo. And every once in a while, I bump into words that I still can't quite say. I practice my enunciation. I practice getting my tongue and my mouth to operate cohesively so that I can enunciate. And, uh, And I do a lot of exercises to have that happen. But then I bump into these words that for the life of me, I cannot say. It turns out that I cannot say chitty, chitty, bang, bang quickly. I tried to sing it to my son. I said, don't you know that song? It goes, oh, you, and I couldn't say it. And so I say that to say the rest of 2 Kings chapter 15, which is where we are tonight, includes complicated names, which I am sure to stumble over in my attempt to pronounce them correctly. And uh, perhaps I'll do okay, but if I stumble, hey, what do you want from me? I had a stroke. And I'm going to play that card for as long as I can. Especially when we get to the point where we learn the name of the Assyrian king, whose name is Tiglath-Pileser III, because Tiglath-Pileser seemed to be such a good name that there had to be at least two more people named that. And so tiglath 
Pileser III, who was the king of Assyria. We're going to talk about Assyria tonight. As we work our way through chapter 15, we're going to do some history, but we're also going to do some theology because even in the very mundane listing of the succession of kings in the northern kingdom, even there the writers can't help but ascribe to God the things that are playing out in Israel. Who's king, when they're king, how long they're king, how many generations they get to be king, that's all left up to God. When Tiglath-Pileser, who quite fortunately goes by the nickname Pull, well, that's much easier. <laughs> and so even when he comes down on Assyria, it's ascribed to God, that God did this. The same way that God sent prophets, God is bringing the enemies that surround Israel down on Israel because of the things that they did. And in two chapters, we're going to start reading about uh, why Israel went into this bondage. Because the author of 2 Kings wants to be very clear about the fact that these things happened not just historically, but they happened theologically. They happened in the will of God. They happened because God chose a particular people, and those people were supposed to respond to him, and they just didn't. They didn't follow his law, and they didn't follow him as the only God, and they chased after foreign gods, and they sent their children through the fires of Molech, and they very genuinely worshipped other gods, foreign gods. So, so we're going to get to all of that, but in chapter 15, it could be very easily a very boring chapter if we were to just read it out, because it really is just a succession of kings in the north during the time that Uzziah is the king in the south. And it can be just a listing of those kings if we don't pay attention to the details. We're also going to do a little extra biblical anthropological work tonight. We're going to talk historically about Assyria because we're introduced to Assyria in this chapter. It's the first time that Assyria turns up. And so we're going to have to talk about who the Assyrian kingdom is and what they're doing geographically and what they're doing in the history of the Middle East. So we're going to talk about all that, and hopefully I will be able to say every name correctly. Fair enough? We read last week the first seven verses of chapter 15 as we talked about Uzziah. So we're going to pick up in verse 8. Chapter 15 of 2 Kings, verse 8. In the 38th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, that is Uzziah, he became king when he was 16 years old. He reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. And so during that 52-year reign, there was a whole succession of kings in the north. So in the 38th year of Azariah of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in Samaria for six months. This is Jeroboam II. And what you may recall of him is that he was as bad as the first Jeroboam. And he led Israel astray and led Israel into all forms of idol worship. In fact, verse 9 says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
which he made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him before the people and killed him, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Then look at this next verse. This is a very interesting verse. It says, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Yehu, saying, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And so it was. Look back at chapter 10 for just a moment. We'll quickly bring you up to date on what happened to Jehu. Remember Ahab? Remember all the things that Ahab did? Remember his evil wife? Remember what a bad king he was? Well, Jehu took vengeance against the household of Ahab and actually killed all the sons of Ahab. So the reign of Ahab and his family came to an end. And that pleased God. In fact, the next thing that Jehu or Yehu did is that he killed all the worshipers of Baal. That also pleased God. In chapter 10, verse 30, we read, And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. And in those days, the Lord began to cut off portions of Israel, and Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. So here's another example of the writer of 2 Kings accrediting God with bringing the enemies of Israel against Israel. But in verse 30, we read that God was pleased with Jehu. And so he said to him, you're going to get four generations, but only four. You're going to get exactly four generations. And this is what you have to know. Zechariah was actually the fourth generation of the sons of Jehu. And it was Zechariah who was then killed by this Shalom, the son of Jabesh, who conspired against him and struck him and killed him and then reigned in his place. He was not of the lineage of Jehu. Therefore, the lineage of Jehu lasted exactly four generations. Wasn't that lucky? (laughs) Now, we're talking about murder here. The murder of Zechariah by this Shalom, who then takes the throne by force. And yet, even in his murder, even in his usurpation of the throne, he did exactly what God had predicted would be done. Had he not done that, then it would have continued in the lineage of Jehu, and Zechariah's son would have been king. But instead, people doing exactly what they wanted to do in the evil of their hearts committed murder and usurpation and did exactly what God had said was going to be done. So, Jehu, you're a good king. You did the things that I did want you to do. 
So I'm going to give you four generations. But then we read that Jehu didn't follow in the ways of God, did not follow his law. He followed after all the things that Jeroboam had done. And so God brought his family reign to an end in quite a violent way. And yet this was all the will of God. We talked about it a little bit last night at men's meeting that God can bring about suffering and trials and difficulties in life. And yet those things serve God's greater purpose. Some people have a concept of God where they say God is always in the good things. When good things happen to me, that's God. And when bad things happen, that's not God. But what are you saying? It's all God? It's all God. So if God is truly sovereign, and certainly the writer of 2 Kings seems to think he is, then everything plays out according to God's intention and goodwill. So verse 12, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Jehu, saying, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And so it was. Shalem, son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and he reigned for one month in Samaria. So much for usurpation. That's the second shortest reign that we find anywhere in the Old Testament. There was a king who reigned, what, like seven days or something? Yeah, very short. But here's a month that we get uh, Shalom, the son of Jabesh, as king. But here's what happened. Then Menahem, who is son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah and came to Samaria and struck Shalom, son of Jabesh, in Samaria and killed him, and he became king in his place. So now it's not following lineages anymore. There's not family lines anymore. There are now kings killing kings and becoming kings. This is also the downfall of Israel. By the time we get to the end of this chapter and into the next chapter, we're going to see the kings that are actually overwhelmed by Assyria coming in. So this is really the end of rulership in the north. So the rest of the acts of Shalom and his conspiracy which he made, behold, they're written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Then Menahem struck Tifsah and all who were in it and its borders from Tirzah because they did not open to him. Therefore, he struck it and he ripped up its women who were with child. Now, what that's about, there's commentaries that you can read about it, but there's also history written about it. Apparently, this city did not recognize him as king, which is what it means by did not open to him, did not give him a kingly procession. And because he did not receive the reception that he believed he was supposed to receive in Tifsah, he then struck it. So it's, it's even one of the cities of Israel that he is the king of Israel is now destroying and killing pregnant women. So this is how deep the depravity has become in Israel. That takes us to verse 17. And in the 39th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel, and he reigned for 10 years in Samaria. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
he did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And now we're introduced to Pol, whose real name I've told you was Tiglath-Pileser III. Pol, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pol a thousand talents of silver so that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his rule. So apparently the cities of Israel are not recognizing him as king, and so he makes an agreement with the king of Assyria that includes a tremendous amount, a thousand talents of silver, so that the king of Assyria will prop him up and make him more powerful as king. So now, rather than going to God, think about the way these kings began, they were under the hand of God. God was going to rule over the king, and the king was going to be one of God's representatives to the people. But now, rather than go to God about his own reign and rulership, he's now making deals with Assyrian kings. So let's fill in a few blanks here. Pol has been identified from Assyrian inscriptions as Tiglath-Pileser III, who reigned from 745 to 727 B.C. So we've got some idea what's happening time-wise here. This is pretty much halfway between Moses and Jesus. Moses is about 1,400 years. David is about 1,000. And now this Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrian captivity is happening right in the early 700s, 745 to 727. Now this is, as I said, this is the first mention of Assyria in 2 Kings. Pol was one of Assyria's strongest leaders, and this invasion of Israel took place in 743 and resulted in Menahem's paying tribute to Pol in return for 37 tons of silver. That's how much a thousand talents would come out to. 37 tons of silver, which we're going to read in a moment, that the way that Menahem came up with that money is that he heavily taxed all the rich in Israel. Anybody who had money had to pay so that he could pay the foreign king. If this sounds familiar, in fact, his, his war cry was, the rich have to pay their fair share. And that, never mind. <laughs> I knew you'd enjoy that. So 37 tons of silver Menahem raised from the wealthy men of Israel. And he gave it to the Assyrian king for his support to help him retain the crown. Now, Assyria and Syria. People get confused about these two things because we have already talked about the Arameans. And I've mentioned in the past that they are the Syrians. They're not the Assyrians. There's a difference here. Assyria and Syria were originally two different nations, although their founders, Asher and Aram, were brothers. They were the sons of Shem. You can read about that back in Genesis 10.22. The Assyrians conquered Aram as Syria was originally known. Syria was originally known as Aram, and hence the Arameans. So just before conquering the northern kingdom of Israel, right around 730 to 720 B.C., 
they conquered Aram. The Babylonians eventually conquered Assyria, and at that time, both Assyria and the remnant of Aram then ceased to exist. That's why there's no Assyria now. But there is a great many kingdoms in the Middle East that are direct descendants of the Assyrians. The Assyrian homeland encompassed areas of what are now northern Iraq, northwestern Iran, southeastern Turkey, and northeastern Syria, which is the hotbed of trouble in the Middle East, especially hatred for Israel and the intention to blow Israel off the map. They were enemies back then. They're enemies today. So the names have changed, but the descendants of that nation are still the ancient enemies of Israel. The ruins of Nineveh, the capital of ancient Assyria, which, by the way, is where Jonah was sent, the ruins of Nineveh can be found in Mosul, a city in modern Iraq. Damascus, the capital of Syria, was originally the capital of Aram of the Arameans. Assyria was one of the great Mesopotamian powers along with the Babylonians and the nearby Persians. The areas they occupied are roughly close to the borders of modern day Syria, Iraq, which was Babylon, and Iran, which was Persia. Assyria in particular was located to the east and the northeast of the northern kingdom of Israel stretching into Mesopotamia and the broad plain between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, they occupied all that land. So they became a mighty kingdom, the Assyrians. And you've got to kind of know who they are because they are the ones who, in God's great foreordination and predestinary sovereignty, they're the ones that God used to wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. And they're the ones that sent Gentiles into the areas that were once the northern kingdom of Israel so that that area of Samaria became populated by Gentiles. And then eventually, when the slaves of Israel departed out of Assyria, the vast majority of them went north into the Caucasus Mountains and they kind of disappeared to history. They're what we call today the Lost Tribes. But there were some that remained and some that went back to their homeland and they intermingled and intermarried with those Assyrians that were now living in the area of Samaria and they were known as Samaritans. And so that's why the Israelites, the Jews, hated the Samaritans because they were half-breeds. And that, of course, is why Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan is so shocking because it was an answer to, well, who's my brother? And he went to the most hated people, the Samaritans, and gave an example where you'd have to say, well, he is. So, Assyria as a nation began a rise to power in the 13th century BC, and they contended with Egypt and Babylon for control of the area of Palestine, but during that same period, Israel was becoming a nation during their bondage in Egypt. But that early on, they were already a great and a powerful nation in Assyria. 
So Assyria enjoyed a kind of golden age from the 12th to the 10th centuries BC, but became weakened through corruption and increasing hostilities with Babylon to its south. And it was during this time that the Jews re-entered Palestine and they reached their own golden age under King David. But beginning in the 9th century BC, Assyria began a reform that led to it arising once more as a formidable power there in the Middle East. During that same period, the 9th to the 8th centuries, which we're talking about 700s, the Jews were in decline as the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah had divided and they were engaged in increasing conflict and even outright war with one another. So Assyria grew stronger and by the early 8th century, it began to dominate the nations of the ancient Near East with Israel still being a fairly formidable foe. There have been a series of attempted wars or incursions by Assyria, but Israel had always been able to cast them off, had always been able to hold them at bay. And then God took away his hand of protection. And all of a sudden, Assyria is going to not just conquer northern Israel, but sweep through there and take all the people prisoner. So God is going to turn them over utterly. So because of Israel's sins, she was growing weaker, her enemies were growing stronger, and God sent prophets. God sent people to them, starting way back at Elijah and Elisha, warning them not to be like that. And then Jonah and Micah and Amos and Hosea, which we read. So the final showdown with Israel came about 721 B.C. during the reign of King Hosea. We're about to meet him who foolishly and against prophetic instruction made a pact with Egypt and refused to pay tribute to Assyria. And that was a good enough reason for Assyria to come conquer them. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, attacked the northern kingdom of Israel, utterly destroying it. We'll see that in 2 Kings 17. And those who survived disappeared into exile, and the few who remained intermarried with the Assyrians and became the Samaritan people. The modern state of Syria, meanwhile, as we speak, there still is a Syria who still are enemies of Israel. The modern state of Syria occupies land that is similar to ancient Assyria, but it's not equivalent to or even directly descended from ancient Assyria. The, the nation of Syria, do you know its history? As the Middle East was being formed right around that 1946 to 1948 when Israel became a nation, it was April of 1946 that the French were replaced by the Ottomans and they gave independence to Syria as a parliamentary republic. But the post-independent period has been stormy to say the least. There have been a lot of military coups, and Syria continues to be a problem for Israel in the Middle East. So when I say Assyria, don't think modern-day Syria. Ancient Syria was populated by people who were also known as Arameans, and so ancient Syria was known by the name Aram. And then they, Aram, were conquered by the Assyrians. Got it? Are you following all that? Mm 
And then to the south is Babylon, which is today Iraq. And their enemies that overtook Babylon were the Persians, who is modern-day Iran. You got all that? <laughs> Marilyn shook her head like, wow. I, yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. I'm just trying to plug in all the historic and geographic players so that you understand them. We're back in 2 Kings 15. So Pol, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pol a thousand talents of silver so that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his rule. Then Menahem exacted the money from Israel, from the people, even from all the mighty men of wealth. From each man, 50 shekels of silver to pay the king of Assyria. Now, as you might expect, this did not make him popular. He heavily taxed the high and the mighty, and so that plays into what's going to happen to King Menahem. So the king of Assyria returned and did not remain there in the land, and now the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel, and Menahem slept with his father's and Pekahiah, his son, became king in his place. In the 50th year of Azariah, Uzziah, who's still king down in Judah, in his 50th year as king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, became king over Israel in Samaria. He reigned two years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Then Pekah, remember that name because we're going to talk about him a little bit now. Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, his officer, an officer of the king, conspired against him and struck him in Samaria. That's why he only reigned for two years in the castle of the king's house with Argob and Ariah, and with him were 50 men of the Gileadites, and he killed him, and he became king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of this Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. So let's talk about that for a moment. We're talking about 740 BC essentially here, the 52nd year of Josiah. At that time, this guy Pekah began to rule over Israel from Samaria, but he had apparently never accepted Menahem's claim to the throne. Remember I mentioned a moment ago that Menahem was a, an unpopular king and that there were cities that didn't accept him as king, and this Pekah is one of those people who did not accept him as, as king. And he had set up a rival government east of the Jordan River in Gilead, which is why he could come attack the king with the Gileadites. So he saw himself as the rightful king, even while the king was living, even while Menahem was on the throne, he saw himself as soon to be king. And so he set up this rival government in Gilead. And Pekah lived there as a military officer under the Sumerian government until the time was right for him to assert himself. His 20-year reign means that he began ruling in Gilead at the same time that Menahem took the throne in Samaria, and his reign overlapped Menahem's 
and Pekahias, and in 740 BC, he assassinated Pekahiah and started ruling in Samaria where he remained until he was overthrown in 732 BC. I only mention this because it's really interesting political intrigue. There's genuinely, truly no God-given king in Israel. There are factions and rival governments and people killing kings and taking up the throne. There is no God-ordained, God-led leadership in Israel at this point. And so it's no wonder that they were eventually busted up completely. But God didn't just do it in one fell swoop. He let them be themselves. He let them revel in their debauchery. He let them be every bit as debased as they were able to be until even their kings, who were supposed to be the representatives of God, had become completely and utterly corrupt. You get it? Okay. Verse 27. In the 52nd year of Azariah, the king of Judah, that's his last year, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for 20 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, this one that we're talking about, in those very days, Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon and Abel Beth Ma'akah and Genoa and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee and all the land of Naphtali and he carried them captive into Assyria. So it's when the kingship, when the leadership was at its lowest point, at the end of a succession of murders of kings for people to usurp the throne, that God turned Israel over to Tiglath-Pileser and Assyria. And Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, and he struck him and put him to death, and he became king in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So meanwhile, as all these kings had been Going through their succession in the northern kingdom, Uzziah ruled for 52 years. But remember that Uzziah lived in his own private house because God had put leprosy on him. And while he was in his private house, his son Jotham was acting as king, judging between the people. And so when he died, Jotham then became king. And now we're to the point where he's been king for 20 years. That's when these events took place. Here's what you need to know, though. This Tiglath-Pileser III, who's sometimes named Pol, was leading a campaign into Philistia, into Israel, and later into Aram in 734 to 732 BC. And we can read more about it in 2 Chronicles, which we will most likely do. In these battles, he took the town of Ijan, which is a town in Naphtali, he took Abel Beth Ma'akah, just south of Aijan. He took Genoa, another neighboring village. He took Kadesh, just west and north of those towns. And Hazor, south of Kadesh. He took all of Gilead, east of the Jordan River. And he took Galilee, the northern portion of Israel, including the territory of Naphtali 
and he deported those people to Assyria. This first deportation of Israelites probably took place right around 733 BC. And there is a second deportation that happens 11 years later in 722 BC. And so as I said earlier, these things are happening in successions, in waves. There's a constant state of, of incursion coming from Assyria down on Israel, and they never felt safe. They never felt secure because God had turned them over, had given them over to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. So let's read the end of this chapter, starting at verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, he did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Isn't that nice to read? How many kings in a row have we seen? And he did evil. And he followed after Jeroboam. And he so I have said, and I think we've now seen it demonstrated, that among the kings of the northern tribes, from Jeroboam the first all the way through every king, all you ever saw was from bad to worse. You never saw any of the kings of Israel receiving compliments from God. You just saw they were wrong. They were bad. They were wrong. But King David, the man after God's own heart, the succession of kings in Judah stayed after David's lineage. And every so often, you got really good kings who followed after God. And so Uzziah did that, and then his son did that. Except, verse 35, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. And now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now in those days, look at verse 37. Now in those days, King Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, came against Judah. I left out something real important. What did I leave out? The Lord brought them. This seems like a random thing that happened because what happened is that they made an agreement between the two of them and they were going to go attack Judah together. Remember, we were talking about wars between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so... The king of Aram, this resin, and Pekah, the king of Israel, what was left of Israel, they made an alignment with each other to come down on Judah. But it says in those days, the Lord began to send resin and Pekah against Judah, which again is a demonstration of how the author of 2 Kings sees the events that took place in Israel and in Judah. These were not random events. These things did not just occur through happenstance and luck. These things were all played out the way God assigned them to be played out. Now, let me just take a moment there to become preacherly on you because I'm going to apply this verse for just a moment because we really do live in some fairly precarious political days. 
and we have two of the most questionable candidates that we've had in a long time in our country. And it's real easy for us to get wrapped up in the politics of it and in the news of it and in the, the constant reporting of it. And it's real easy to, to get caught in all that. But we have to be reminded that God was always, always in control of the kings of the Middle East, not just the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, but he was also in charge of the kings of Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Egypt. And so the heart of the king is indeed in the hands of God. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wheresoever he will. He, he turns it the way he wants to turn it. So rather than get too upset about the politics of our modern day, I remember that they're just human beings who are going to be on the stage of history for a short time. But the one who rules, the one who reigns, the one who is sovereignly in charge is God in heaven, who's sitting on his throne doing whatever pleases him. So how is the election going to come out? Whichever way pleases God. And what's going to be the upshot of the election? Well, whoever gets elected is going to end up doing exactly what God foreordained to be done. The same way that we read tonight, that people did exactly what they wanted to do, murder, bloodshed, usurpation of thrones, and they did exactly what God foreordained and prophesied would be done. And if it's true that Jesus is coming back, and I believe he is, and if certain events have to take place on planet Earth to prepare us for the return of Christ, then those events are indeed actually going to happen, and it really doesn't matter who's sitting in the White House. These things are going to play out the way God determined them to play out. And you may think to yourself, well, it's going to get bad. And it is. But gee, how often have I said, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. Because it really is going to get worse. There's a phrase that many, many years ago, over in Franklin, as a matter of fact, I heard John Riesinger in a Sunday school class say, it's going to get very, very dark, but it's going to be gloriously dark. And I just never forgot that phrase. It's going to be gloriously dark because it's going to be sovereign God ruling over the darkness that's coming on this planet. Amen. Now, likewise, this darkness came on Israel, but God, through the prophets, continually promised that he's going to, because of the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to restore Israel. He's going to bring Israel back and give them, again, a great kingdom with David's greater son sitting on the throne, ruling over all Israel, and then blessings flowing out to all the Gentile nations because of the blessings that flow through Israel. That's God's intention. That's the ultimate game plan. That's going to happen, but first it's going to have to get gloriously dark. So we should prepare ourselves and confidently, steadfastly know that the God who's in charge also knows how to take care of us. As a result of Israel's defeat, 
Hosea conspired against Pekah and assassinated him and succeeded him as king of Israel in 732 BC. On one of the Assyrian inscriptions, Tiglath-Pileser III claims to have had a hand in establishing Hosea on the throne. So this final king of the northern tribes up in Israel is just a puppet king of the Assyrians. Tiglath-Pileser even bragged about it in his inscriptions of the acts of his kingship, of his rulership, that he was in charge of the kings of Israel. Now think about that. Because I said already, God established Israel and Judah to be a theocracy. And then they wanted a king. So he said, all right, you can be like the nations around you. You can have a king. And originally he gave them Saul. And then he gave them a man after God's own heart. And that was their heyday. They were in their glory days because they had a king who actually followed after God. And from that point forward, it all went downhill, 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 until the king of Assyria could brag that he was in charge of the king of Israel. That's how far they fell. All right, let's just wrap it up there. There are parallel passages in the Chronicles, and Second Chronicles, that parallel the things that we just learned. Uh, eventually, this Tiglath-Pileser is going to try to attack Judah. Judah is going to repel those attacks originally. But you know that eventually it's going to be Babylon that is going to come down on Jerusalem the same way that the Assyrians come down on the northern tribes. And from that point, we will begin reading about the succession of kings in the southern kingdom. And we will read the theology that comes out of 2 Kings. A lot of people are surprised that there actually is theology at the end of the book that describes why God turned Israel and Judah over and why he predicted that these things were going to happen and why they came about. So that's what we're going to find out in the end of the book of 2 Kings. Make sense? Yes, sir. Are you understanding the book of 2 Kings more now? Is it making more sense? I mean, it really is logical and rational because it is telling the history of Israel, but it's also including God's perspective on these things as they play out. And you see God's control over human history. And since God doesn't change, with God there's no variableness or nor the shadow of turning. We know that God is still in charge today. And the same God who raised up and knocked down kings is still in the process of raising up and knocking down kings. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.